On February 26, 1906, journalist, novelist, and muckraker Upton St. Clair published The Jungle, a powerful piece of literature that sparked the food regulation revolution. It inspired and urged the passing of the Federal Law for Meat Inspection and created the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that same year. The book's horrid description of the meatpacking industry temporarily made the president at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, vegetarian. Some stories even claim that the president refused to eat any meat product until proper laws were enacted. These new legislations created regulations that made sure the meat industry inspect and monitor their production and largely prevented problematic food and drug products from entering the market. That's the story commonly told about the jungle. But there's a problem. None of that is true. Not the whole truth, at least. This is Everything is Public Health, a show about how things you may have never thought about are there to protect your health. This episode is about a book, but not the jungle. This book inspired a series of protective regulations in the food and drug industry, a book that despite its more profound impact than its predecessor, The Jungle, few people know. This is about 100 million guinea pigs. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So the reason why I want to do this episode is because if we just have a show about how everything doesn't work, that would be too depressing of a show. So I wanted to focus on some public health wins. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I took a dive into the history corner of my mind to find those public health wins. And one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is food regulations, because it used to be the Wild West when it comes to food products and regulation really protected the health and well-being of the consumers. What I quickly found out, depressingly enough, is that even our wins are founded on tragedies. (laughs) Almost never did we preemptively enact something to protect against a possibility. It's almost always something awful happened and then we did something to you know address it. So even our wins are kind of sad. That's a re- that's like a really depressing way to approach it. I mean, it I think any success, right, often comes because we tried something and failed and then we try something else or something isn't working. People recognize it's a problem. And so we try something else. Now, I will say if folks want some more positive stories of public health wins, I would encourage you to check out While We Were Sleeping by David Hemingway, which is focused on sort of injury-related things. The Bloomberg School of Public Health, in celebration of its centennial, put out a bunch of stories around successes in public health. So like, there are lots of success stories. Not all of them came out of something super depressing, but food regulation is, this is something, you know, because I did my master's in environmental and occupational health, if you yes, recall. You and so we did talk a lot about food processing. So I'm interested to see which direction you're taking this conversation. <laughs> I have an anticipation. So we'll see. Well, perfect segue. Have you heard of The Jungle by Upton St. Clair? And if you did, what is it? Yeah, I read the book as part of my master's program in environmental and occupational health. Perfect. <laughs> um, and it's a story about, now it's been an embarrassingly long time since I did my master's, so I might get some of the details wrong, but if I'm recalling properly, it was about a meat processing plant and all of the dangers, the risks that the workers were exposed to, the nasty nasty things that would happen Completely awful yeah. strategies for how they would distract the inspectors <laughs> so that things could go past and they wouldn't see any of the bad stuff 
like somebody loses an arm or a leg or something, right? Like isn't doesn't like a body part. Someone fell into a vat and then they had yes. to drag him out or something. It's gnarly. It was gnarly. It was basically showing how, hey, this is the meatpacking industry and it's god awful. I believe it was an assigned reading during either high school or undergrad for me. I was supposed to read it, but I shamefully <laughs> never did. not, did. clearly. But oh. okay, okay, I mean, there are there are times where you get a lot of assigned readings, and obviously you can read everything. It's just... You can't actually read everything. You just prioritize the, your time. <laughs> Cass is a straight-A student. I'm clearly not. But the impression that I got was thus, right? Basically, it was a very influential book, and it started the whole food regulation revolution. But I dug deeper into this, and that story is not... A hundred percent true. What, you mean the the book or the fact that it the led whole to legacy that it has inherited is not a hundred percent true. Like it is very important. It is very influential. It did kickstart a lot of things, but there were a lot of things that uh, maybe people don't know about. So, for example, well, the legend is always better than reality. MJ, that's right? true. <laughs> that's very true. Uh, so let's go through some of those legends. So first, there is a story. I don't know if you heard about this one, but there is a story about Teddy Roosevelt going vegetarian temporarily when he read The Jungle, but that was apocryphal, as in not true. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the president known for hunting and investing in cattle ranching, he did not become vegetarian, not even for a brief time. Knowing that, what do you think his response to The Jungle was? Oh, I'm sure he thought the book was total that is correct. So the story about how, oh my God, he read it and he was so shocked and he quickly wanted to push for legislation was not 100% true. Teddy called St. Clair, and this is in quotes, a crackpot. Oh, Teddy. Because of the journalist socialist position and stated that, this is again in quote, tell St. Clair to go home and let me run the country for a while. So his initial response was not entirely favorable, but he was sympathetic to St. Clair. He just didn't view him favorably. And he also said, I have utter contempt for him. He just sees this guy as a raging socialist. And he is just, you know, his fervor was almost too much, too passionate about this. And also Teddy expressed skepticism for the things St. Clair wrote about in the jungle. And it was sort of like a classic, oh, it can't be that bad. I'm pretty sure this guy was just, you know, exaggerating and making things up. Yeah, that's a pretty common reaction, right? Like, oh, it's not that bad. Or, you know, it could be worse. All those kinds of things we've talked about previously. It's not surprising that (laughs) there will be pushback for the book from leadership, particularly among folks who like to consume meat or yeah. who want to see the country be successful and see meat production and consumption as being part of that process. Yeah. And, you know, again, Teddy Roosevelt, avid hunter and invested in cattle ranching. Right. So, but Teddy, did, is it weird that I call him Teddy? Is that? It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like familiar. <laughs> Okay, fine. But President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, did agree that these capitalist arrogance and greed must be addressed. And therefore, very quickly after the jungle was published, the Federal Meat Inspection Act was passed, and it did set the standard for slaughtering and the process of meat products. But to say it was comprehensive is false. Cass, when I say meat, what do you think that means? Well, again, I did my master's in environmental and occupational health and read this book, and and we talked a little bit about this. But originally, if I'm remembering correctly, it was cow-based processing that was included. It didn't include other meats, or maybe it only excluded chickens or something, but it, it wasn't a holistic, like, 
meat had a very narrow definition or much more narrow than we think of it now. Exactly. You pretty much got a spot on. It was beef Gold and star. somewhat pork. Gold star for you. And yeah, so it did not include poultry at all. Poultry was completely left out until 1957, half a century later. While it was a big step in the right direction, it wasn't the it wasn't a comprehensive thing that people may have assumed that the jungle inspired. And people also thought that FDA was established with the Pure Food and Drug Act passed shortly after the jungle was published, but that is not fully accurate. It established the precursor to the FDA, but the FDA as we know it today was not established by the Pure Food and Drug Act. And it was not as powerful as people have thought initially. The act was mostly focused on fraud. So it was mostly like you can't label things A and then actually have B. It was mostly a fraud thing rather than a safety thing. Which makes sense, right? If you're starting a new organization, agency, regulatory body, whatever you want to call it, you are trying to figure out what kinds of things you have authority over. And a simple thing to do is to hold people accountable if they lie to you, right? Yes. If I say, I'm giving you eggs, and really I give you- Not eggs. <laughs> not eggs, give you aquafava, then people are going to be like, right. what the hell? You told me you're giving me eggs, right? This is not egg or vice versa. Nevertheless, we're headed in the right direction, right? This is, even though it's not as comprehensive, it was the right step towards actual food regulation. Now, Cass, what do you think St. Clair thought about all these reforms? Well, again, if I'm remembering correctly from oh so many yeah, years ago- Yeah, you read ago, this book. This is not fair. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure he thought they were total- Yeah, so- St. Clair actually was not happy about the legislations on mainly two grounds. The first, under these legislation, the government was responsible for the inspection, which means taxpayers were the one that have to foot the bill to enforce these standards. It's not like, hey, industry, you need to do this and right. you need to prove to us. He was not happy about because they're making profit and the taxpayers are having to pay for it. Yeah. And then second, he thought that these legislations were not strong enough to fully address the issue that he saw. And as we said, meat has a very narrow definition. And also the FDA was more of a fraud deterrent rather than like a safety agency. And they, it didn't really punish the meat packers for their past unethical behavior. So even the author of this influential work was not happy about these. Well, right. And if you think about the way it was structured, as long as you're not lying, you can still do like some questionable or like shady things and still potentially not be in violation, right? So it's only if you flat out lie or commit fraud that there is a problem. So you can just kind of look the other way and not know exactly what is going on and not be liable or responsible. So, you know, it's, it didn't really address the, the core issue, the safety of the product for consumers. And it really didn't do all that much to address the safety of the workers either. You know, all of the issues that Sinclair had outlined in his book were still so there. prominent issues, which is why he thought they were... Lastly, there was a lot of details about the jungle that gets glossed over a lot when when we, well, you read it because you're a good student. I didn't <laughs> read it, but there's a lot of details that get glossed over. First of all, it was a novel, which means it was based on his observation, but technically, technically, it was fictional. It was a fictional work. And, and I think this is a huge part. The book was not aimed at the meat industry specifically. The original purpose of St. Clair when he wrote this was he wanted to promote socialism by showing these awful working conditions and, you know, saying that, hey, this is what capitalism does. It's awful. These workers are getting mistreated and it didn't really work. And to quote the author, I aimed at the public's heart and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. I love that quote so much. I remember that when we were discussing this book because we often think, oh, we're going to deliver this message or we've crafted this public health campaign or educational whatever, PSA, 
And it doesn't always land the way we think it's going to land. And like you said before, these new reforms did not address working conditions at all. It was a food thing, which, you know, again, great. But these workers are still working in some god-awful conditions with little to no pay. Well, little pay. And St. Clair was like, this is not the intended message that I want to do with this novel. Yeah, absolutely. I recall, you know, talking about the risks that workers were routinely exposed to both in meat packing and processing, but all sorts of industries where there were very few protections for workers, very few avenues of recourse if something happened. And, you know, Sinclair trying to highlight the dangers Mm -hmm. and everyone focusing in on the sort of consumer side of things and not enough attention being paid to well, what kinds of risks are the people who are making the product you're going to consume exposed to? um, And how can we address those pieces? Yeah, it didn't have the desired outcome, although it did help at least address certain issues that were raised. Yeah. And all this is to say, while The Jungle was indeed an incredibly important and impactful work, to say that it was the book that made the biggest difference in the United States food and drug regulation is debatable at the very least. Now, Cass, have you heard of the book 100 million guinea pigs. I have not. Great. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, so this book, I would argue, had a much bigger impact in food and drug regulation than The Jungle. It was written by Arthur Callet and F.J. Do you want to pronounce that last name for me? Schlink? I would guess Schlink. Arthur Callet and F.J. Schlink, and first released in 1933, decades after The Jungle. The book's premise was that the American consumers are being treated like guinea pigs by the food and drug industry, hence the title, 100 Million Guinea Pigs. And this was the one of the first consumer justice book published in the U.S., Previously, manufacturers of food and medicine only their conscience to stop them from doing anything dubious or straight up dangerous. <laughs> that works so well. Because in a capitalistic system where money is the highest virtue, it was only a matter of time before something unethical happened. And many unethical things did happen. Uh, do you have a guess or do you have? Do you just know uh, what those unethical things may be? Uh, I don't recall exactly, but I can take a, a swag. Yeah. As we've discussed before, is a a scientific wild guess. Go for it. I would assume that people were producing questionable quality products that were causing injuries, deaths, bad things were happening to people as a result of products that were made for consumption or use by human people. Yeah, human people. (laughs) But, you know, that's pretty much the broad strokes of it. But, you know, things like uh, mislabeling didn't really go away, right? So there is still a lot of mislabeling labeling, not in a sense that they lie on the packaging, but they always package things in a way that is confusing to the consumer. So using different color wrappers to suggest different things. So technically, they didn't lie on their packaging, but it's one of those like, oh, you have to read the fine print to really figure out what this thing is. Well, and that goes back to the the fraud issue that we talked about when you know, we were talking about the Sinclair book, The Jungle. Flat out lying was bad, but like there are shades, shades of, of gray, bad, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could like flirt with that line and not be held accountable because you didn't flat out lie. Yeah. So there was a lot of those and there were a lot of just using just straight up weird preservatives like formaldehyde was a thing and people ate it and it was just a lot of chemicals that were just untested and some even say not just untested but we know we suspect that this has a negative health outcomes and also this is the area of quackery drugs so a lot of times it's like oh if you take this it will solve all your health issues right there was a lot of those like just untested drugs during this era and a lot of high profile deaths because of these 
tampered with or just like drugs that just straight up didn't work. I mean, I'm having visions of the guy rolling out of his cart and opening it up and saying like, oh, that is the vision. Yes. Like I've got a, a tonic for you or rub this snake oil on you, you know, like all of those, the sleazy guys who would be hawking their wares, uh, trying to claim that certain things did certain beneficial things. Yeah, this was exactly that era where pretty much anything goes. And if you can, if you don't flat out lie on your label, then you could, you could pretty much do anything. And then there was no accountability for claim. So you can claim that your drug does anything and they can prove that it doesn't. And the book directly stated that the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, the one sparked by St. Clair's The Jungle, was not effective in preventing these trends. One quote from the book, if the poison is such that it acts slowly and insidiously, perhaps over a long period of years, then we poor consumers must be test animals all our lives. And when, in the end, the experiment kills us a year or 10 years sooner than otherwise we would have died, no conclusion conclusions can be drawn and 100 millions others are available for further tests. So that was one of the quotes pulled from this book that really just showcased the title, right? 100 million guinea pigs. So depressing. And the first thing I immediately thought of is we haven't gotten away from this. We have better (laughs) regulations, better policies, better testing, all those pieces. But I regularly and routinely see, oh, take this pill to have X thing or take this for Y thing or drink these shakes for whatever. And social media has certainly not helped because you're constantly seeing these advertisements for different things. But yeah, we're, we're not all that much better off now. And, you know, you would think having a computer at her fingertips, people would do a little bit of research before buying some of these products, but it's flashy, it's good marketing, and people want quick fixes for things, and people are still falling prey to this kind of misleading advertising. Yeah, if something promised you a quick fix, it's probably a lie because there's no quick fix for anything. The book goes on to criticize a lot of things in the food, pharmaceutical, and cosmetic industry, and it would take forever for us to list them all here. But the impact of the book was immense. Not only was it incredibly popular and almost immediately made popular the FDA's collection of all the problematic, fraudulent, and harmful products initially as an exhibit to Congress. So the FDA collected these things and say, hey, this is problematic. So they would take a sample of it and put it in a cupboard somewhere. I don't know how the FDA works, but it was initially an exhibit for Congress. Right. So they were going to show Congress, hey, these are all the problematic products that we have collected. But because of this book, it was quickly made popular and dubbed the American Chamber of Horrors. And it inspired people to be more vocal and active as consumers and even suggested boycotting makers of these awful products. And the book was the one that led to the passage of the Federal Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act of 1938 after a five-year legislative battle in the Congress. And this was the law that made the FDA as we know it today. So this is the law that made the FDA more focused on safety rather than just fraud. And it takes seriously the food and drug regulations from a place of preventing fraud to a place of consumer justice and consumer safety. Guess who opposed it? Oh, industry, obviously. But I would also guess any of the companies that produce the kind of tonics and other things that, you know, vitamins and whatnot that people were trying to hawk. Yeah. Because then they would have been subject, right? If you're consuming something, if you're eating it or or taking it, then I would imagine it would have become subject to these new regulations and that would have made people not happy. Yeah. So the usual suspect, as you suggested, the industry and all those people, but also the medical community was highly opposed 
to this. And to be fair, this was before modern medicine. This was when medicine was just like, take some cocaine for your cold, dude. <laughs> you know, like that sort of medicine. So medicine was quite codependent on these drugs because back then that was sort of the era of medicine. You're just dependent on these tonics and solutions. So they uh, were very opposed, vocally opposed to this book, but also from a scientific perspective. Some of the author's claims were not rigorously tested, and a lot of them were theories. So it's like, I think formaldehyde does this. I think this compound does this, some of which was later disproved. For example, they suspected like bran or something as being toxic. So yeah, from a scientific perspective, it was not as rigorous as we would have liked, but the book was still very important and influential in that and inspired a whole generation of consumer safety. And I think we may do an episode later in the podcast on this, but you know, we're talking about food and drug sort of consumption and things that you're putting on or in your body kinds of pieces. But there's also a complementary organization agency, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, that looks at other kinds of products, right? Car seats, baby gates. I don't know why I'm thinking of only child-related things, bikes, all all sorts of pieces. And they monitor use of these products, injuries related with these products, and can issue recalls and those kinds of things. So I just want to highlight that it's not just about foods and drugs, that there are other organizations that are paying attention to other kinds of products with which humans routinely interact. Yeah, it's not just the FDA. So the one thing I wonder at the end of this episode is that why did this book, a nonfiction book, arguably more impactful to the creation of modern food regulation system in this country, why is this book less known than The Jungle, which was a fictional novel that didn't really establish the things that the author intended it to to establish? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think as humans, we sometimes struggle with reading and processing like a nonfiction kind of thing, right? Because this is like a real thing that could be impacting us. But if something is fictionalized, like real events, but put into a fictional context, sometimes I think it's a little bit easier for people to relate to because it's not them. I don't know if that makes sense. I I think so. Like fiction has a, a type of allure that makes it easier to digest. Honestly, I don't know. At the end of the day, though, both of these books did help advance food and consumer safety, although that might not have been Sinclair's intent, right? He was really focused on the occupational side of things, but he did help advance, at least in some way, the country's attention to food safety. Yeah. And I think with fiction, you can be a lot more descriptive. You could really get into the narrative description of how gross it is, whereas a nonfiction book, uh, perhaps back then, it was just like, here are the facts. And then it was a lot drier, I guess. But yeah, so... I hope now that you know more about both The Jungle and its uh, more influential successor, 100 Million Guinea Pigs. And both of these books are very important for us on the history of food safety. But know that it's not just The Jungle. It's also this other book that no one knows, 100 Million Guinea Pigs. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted this important book. And while I can't promise I will read it, I will certainly think about it in the future. I have a really, really long to read list oh, at the same. moment. It's like 50 books. No, I think it's more now. I keep on adding books to it and I can't read them. Yeah. Anywho, join us on Monday and we will be discussing in a little bit more detail the very difficult role that the FDA has to play.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word about the show so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to EverythingIsPublicHealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Grifasi. And if you're interested in seeing any of my delicious gluten-free baking creations, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show immensely. If you want to support podcasts directly, we have a Patreon page, and you can find a link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.